Side Hustle Show 245, Network Marketing, Imposter Syndrome, My Side Hustle Mistakes, and more. This is 20 Questions with Nick. What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because it's all about those ideas, action, and results. A special solo show for you today. We're taking a break from the interview format and diving into the old listener mailbag again for another edition of 20 Questions with Nick as usual, lots of fun and challenging questions came in over the last six months or so, and I've selected 20 of them to run through today for your benefit and listening pleasure. This is the fourth installment of this series, so notes and links are at sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A4. Of course, if you have a question, feel free to send it over to nick at sidehustlenation.com. That is my email. I can't guarantee an email response, though I will do my best, and you just might be featured in the next round of 20 questions. Ready? Let's do it. All righty. So question number one comes from Dominic. He asks, do these people really make the kind of money like you're explaining here? Dominic, great question. So this is actually, uh, his email was in response to some of the past episodes and blog posts with titles like, hey, make 10 grand a month flipping sneakers. And I think it's a fair question. I mean, when you see headlines about people earning $20,000 a month, a year into their business, or $100,000 on the side, it should give you pause and make you ask, hey, how did that happen? So I make an effort to feature, quote, normal people on the show, although none of us are probably normal for pursuing this side hustle lifestyle, um, in an effort to showcase an if they can do it, you can do it type of theme. And the outsized results are outliers for sure. But in my mind, that's what makes them compelling. And I try and break down, of course, you know, what they did to get there to see what ideas and strategies that, that you can borrow from that. And even if you don't end up seeing the headline results, maybe it gets you off the sidelines and into the game, and that starts some positive momentum. So in terms of my income claim verification process, there really isn't one. I'm not auditing tax returns or anything like that. And in certain cases, people have posted screenshots of their different accounts, although those could be doctored. Um, But I encourage a healthy dose of skepticism. And some guests admittedly have a vested interest in making themselves sound super successful. They're selling a product or a course and, you know, that relies on them knowing what they're talking about. On the flip side, a lot of guests don't either. They just come on because they're fans of the show, because I thought they had a cool story to share and invited them on. So if you don't believe somebody, that's totally fine. Ignore the numbers and instead focus on their lessons and how you can apply them. Question number two comes from Matt. He says, I just ran through your how to start a blog course on your website. You can find that at blogstartercourse.com. It was really helpful to get up and running in the last video titled how to install WordPress. You mentioned you typically use contractors from Fiverr to help set up your site. When you do that, do you create a separate login for them or do you just let you let them use your admin password and credentials? My only concern would be in the rare scenario where someone had some nefarious, nefarious intent and hijacked my site, changing the login and info, deleting the content, etc. Is there a way to restrict that kind of access in WordPress? Matt, that's a great question. Definitely one that I wrestle with from time to time. Like every time I find a great looking provider on Fiverr and have to give them my login information. I'm like, this is either the the best idea I've ever had or my worst idea. And for the latest redesign, actually went a different different route. Didn't use the Fiverr thing, but I have done this in the past for certain WordPress fixes and certain theme setup type of tasks. So there are different user permissions that you can set up inside of WordPress, but in most cases, they're going to need administrator access to make the necessary changes. So that means uh, giving them your login or creating a login with similar permissions. 
I typically will share passwords with LastPass. So if you have a browser extension or if, if they have the browser extension LastPass, you can kind of securely share the password that way without without sharing the actual password. Once they're in, they're in and they can change it. They do whatever they want. So there is an element of trust there. So what I would make sure to do is create a backup of the site beforehand. And I'm using either Updraft. Um, these are free WordPress plugins or backup plugins, either using Updraft or one called WP Backup to Dropbox to get that done. And then once that job is done, go and go through and change the password. And, and then you can move on about your day. And thankfully, haven't had any issues with that yet. Question number three comes from Matthew. He asks, who, if anyone, are you using to help produce or edit your show? What's your podcast production process look like? So Matthew, right now, each interview is edited by Carrie Green's team over at Podcast Fast Track. It's Mike who's doing the editing for the show right now. Carrie was actually a guest on the show last year talking in part about how he hustled to build that productized service business in the podcast editing space. That was episode 172, if you want to check it out. So the process, the production process, how it looks is I upload the raw audio to Dropbox. Actually, before that, I record the interview, usually using Zencaster to record the interview these days, and then uh, upload it to Dropbox. Mike from Podcast Fast Track works his magic and, and dumps it back into Dropbox, which actually triggers an automatic email to Phil, another person on my team, who helps write the highlight reel summaries for us. That's, uh, that automation is actually a recipe you can set up in IFTTT, if this, then that. So when a new file hits a specific folder in Dropbox, you can trigger an email. Really cool automation stuff. So I get the edited audio back from Mike. I'm going to add in my intro, my outro, the music, the ad reads, and usually do actually another full playback of the interview um, itself to listen to see how I can make that any tighter and end up usually cutting a few more segments out of that to just try and get you a better listening experience. Then Phil sends me his summary. I make the final edits to that document, send it over to my virtual assistant, Aini, via another Dropbox automation, and then she installs it onto uh, the show notes and sets up the lead pages integration for that. Next up is Kelvin. This is question number four. He asks, if someone came up to you and said, hey, I'm thinking of entering this niche, what do you think? What qualities in a niche would you want to see before advising them? So Kelvin, I think the biggest consideration is whether or not you care enough about that niche to create a great resource. Like I've tried to build sites where I thought there might be money to be made, but they fizzled out before I gained any traction and because I didn't care about it. The next consideration is whether or not you're addressing a problem people are going to spend money to solve or are they already spending money to solve. The easiest way I think to test that out is to see what else is out there in the space. Are there established companies? Are there companies advertising to this audience against these keywords? I think that's a great sign. And actually, Kelvin is double dipping. He's got question number four and question number five. His question number five from Kelvin is, who are the bloggers and podcasters you follow? In this case, I actually, I try and practice just in time learning for a lot of the online marketing side of things. And honestly, a lot of the podcast listening I do today is to vet guests for the side hustle show. I'll get a pitch and I'll say, hey, you know, have you been on any other shows recently that I can check out? But I do have some favorites. I think you should check out as well if you're if you're not already. So I've been I've been following Pat Flynn and the Smart Passive Income blog and podcast for probably six years now. This was one of the first podcasts I discovered along with Tropical MBA, which uh, I still listen to today. Those are actually the only two shows that I'm subscribed to right now. Although I, I don't catch uh, every single episode of SPI 
anymore. But those are the ones that get pushed automatically to my device. And those those were like my original podcast that, that got me into this game in the first place. So very grateful for both of those shows. I listened to a little bit of Tim Ferriss, a little bit of Noah Kagan, a little bit of Steve Chu over at the My Wife Quit Her Job podcast, a little bit of Bigger Pockets as I'm you know researching some real estate stuff. I think Thomas and Andrew do an awesome job over at Listen Money Matters. And I also think the Freelance Transformation podcast with Matt Inglot is, um, is an underrated show. If you're in the freelance space, I definitely think you ought to check that one out. On the blog side, Dave Chesson's Kindlepreneur.com is a favorite for really anything related to self-publishing. Brian Harris has amazing content on Videofruit.com. I love Mr. Money Mustache and Budgets Are Sexy for personal finance stuff. And you got to check out uh, Taylor Pearson if you're in the mood for some really thought-provoking reading. But those are kind of my favorites. Curious to hear yours. You can let me know in the comments at SideHustleNation.com slash Q&A. Four. Question number six comes in from Sheena. She asks, I've recently come across a business opportunity with Amway. In your opinion, do you think it is worth the investment? Thanks for your help as I'm lukewarm with making this decision. Well, lukewarm is probably a good way to describe my attitude towards uh, network marketing or MLM opportunities as well. It's kind of a hot button issue with a lot of people because everyone knows someone involved with one of these companies, whether it's Amway or whether it's LuLaRoe or Duterra or Stella and Dot or Mary Kay. In fact, at least one study says network marketing is America's most popular side hustle. And combined, these companies do something like $175 billion a year. This is a huge business. This is a huge industry. And some people make fantastic money selling products that they love. And that's the opportunity these companies sell you on. There's a couple challenges though. The first is the business model and you have to kind of peel this back. Like, are you really solving an expensive enough problem? What problem does Amway solve? You're going to have to convince a lot of friends and family to switch their buying habits, which they probably don't necessarily see as a pain point right now. And you have to convince them, hey, take a chance on Amway stuff instead. Or in the case of Stella and Dot, you know, how many orders of this inexpensive jewelry is it realistically going to take to turn that into a meaningful business for you? Is that feasible? You know, what's your what's your profit margin on this stuff? And the other challenge is growing it beyond your immediate network. It's called network marketing, but eventually you're going to exhaust your network unless you have a repeatable system for bringing in new people. So if you're in Sheena's position, if you're evaluating a network marketing company, aside from the issues above, I think the biggest red flag for me is if you have to buy a certain amount of inventory upfront. At that point, the company's made the sale. They have zero incentive in helping you move those products. They made their money. They're moving on. Now, for more on MLMs and some of their shadier practices, actually, uh, John Oliver did a really good segment on this uh, on his show last week tonight. So I'll link that up for you in the show notes. I'm curious, what you know? What's your take on network marketing? Have you had some success in this field? Do you know somebody who has? Have you been burned? Let me know at sidehustlenation.com/q&a4. Question number seven comes from Johnny. He asks, are you really censoring swear words on the internet? This is so American and really, really ridiculous. So uh, Johnny, this is, uh, Johnny's comment is in reference to the Noah Kagan episode, which um, was on brainstorming and validating new business ideas. You can check it out. Episode 237 actually got a few comments related to the language on that one. So Johnny, yes, I am censoring swear words on the internet as American or un-American as that might be. There's a couple reasons for that. First is I've got parents listening with their kids. And second, an explicit rating in iTunes can block your podcast from entire countries. And for me, that's worth bleeping. So 
Uh, there's plenty of other podcasts with plenty of swear words. Go ahead and find those if those are more to your liking. If you travel a lot for work or for a vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over three and a half million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Question eight comes from Dave. He says, I noticed you're using Genius Links as your link localizer today. Uh, 10% of my traffic is from the UK, 6% is from Germany and Russia, and half is from Canada, Australia, Switzerland, and Holland. How is this working for you? So what Dave's talking about is a tool called Genius Link. It's G-E-N-I dot U-S. It's an Amazon link localizer for your affiliate links. And actually, Amazon just rolled out an internal tool called OneLink. It's inside of your associates account, but for whatever reason, it's only US, UK, and Canada so far, I think, not the rest of the world, not all the other Amazon stores that they have. So what Genius Link does is it redirects people to the appropriate country-specific store based on their location. Because if you're in the UK and you click on Amazon.com link, it's not the greatest user experience. So so I actually signed up for this during the launch of buy buttons so I could have one global link. And so I have, I, so I run buybuttonsbook.com through a redirect URL that's a genius link. And so no matter where in the world you are, theoretically, it should link you to the Amazon store that's most appropriate for you. Now, in terms of dollars and euros and pesos and pounds, it's so far been, I think, more of a user experience benefit than a money-making benefit. So genius link is $9 a month, I think. The automatic geo redirects are helpful, but I don't know if I've actually been paid out by any of the international associates accounts yet. I think I've got like 10 bucks in affiliate earnings in Canada, you know, 20 pounds in the UK, you know, a little bit in Germany, a little bit in France and stuff. But 
not enough yet to hit those minimum payout thresholds. I think you've got to get to a hundred bucks in Canada before they're going to cut me a check. And then some of these stores, you know, won't let you open an account like India, for example, won't let you open an account unless you have like a presence in India. So pros and cons to it. And, and for the sake of reference, about 25% of the side hustle nation traffic is, uh, is international. For question number nine, Jason says, uh, I've heard Dr. Meadows, Dr. Kenyon Meadows on a few podcasts lately. He was a guest on the side hustle show in episode 225. Jason asks, do people just do the rounds as in, do they contact a bunch of podcasts and try and get on as many as possible? I guess I don't understand how it works. It's almost like they're agents, you know, pushing the next big thing like in music or movies, or is it you guys all just try and help each other out as much as possible? So Jason, excellent question. And, and you definitely see this most often when somebody is coming out with a new book or a new course and like I actually usually try to avoid being part of somebody's marketing plan. Like I don't want to be a pawn in your big marketing scheme. I know you're going on, what do they call it? A podcast marathon, a podcast tour. I think a podcast tour is what it's called. And so most often these pitches come in from a third party booking agent or even a PR company. And those get ignored almost hundred percent of the time. You know, one exception that that comes to mind is the Dan Harris pitch from last summer and it was on meditation for skeptics like okay that one hit home for me it's like I'm trying to do this and so that made for an interesting conversation now in this case Dr. Meadows reached out to me personally and since the topic of alternative investments was interesting it's something we hadn't really covered before I listened to another interview that he'd done I thought it, you know he was well spoken and then invited him on for question 10, this is an interesting one. Brent says, I'm limited contractually uh, by his day job to building an audience and testing ideas only. I can't make any more than just a very small amount of outside income. Are there any particular articles, podcasts, or Side Hustle Nation um, resources that focus specifically on building an audience and product testing before monetizing that I ought to check out? So Brent, I'll be uh, totally honest, the podcast has been hands down the best audience building platform for me. But of course, your mileage may vary on any of these. If you hit up sidehustlenation.com slash grow, you'll have a huge list of different marketing channels, different ways to build an audience. But I'll, I'll give you a couple of specific options. So depending on the audience you're targeting, Pinterest can work really well, especially as you build up a body of content like that's been working really well for me over the last 18 months, although it's on a little bit of a downward trend. If you check out episode 142 with Rosemary Groner, she's the um, the woman who introduced me to Pinterest and kind of told me how it all worked and been following her system ever since. Some other ideas that might work well for you kind of in this audience building pre-monetization phase could be to host a pitch-free webinar and you can build up your email list that way something that uh, john schumacher discussed a little bit in episode 133 and a close cousin to that would be the virtual summit strategy that navid mawaz's uh, shared in episode 130 where you can kind of compile um, a bunch of influencers in your niche put together a virtual summit and have everybody all the speakers share it with their audience and then kind of build your list that way so lots of ways to get it done without you know, necessarily relying 100% on SEO and like really building up this huge, you know, body of work if you don't want to go that route. But I'm curious where this goes for you. So keep us posted. Question 11 is from Adam. He says, I'd love to hear more about your experience with Fundrise. Is there any benefit to this method over a mutual fund? Does it have cash flow potential or is it designed more as a long-term investment? So Adam, 
please don't take this and everyone else listening, please don't take this as investment advice or a solicitation for investment. I am a Fundrise investor and I'm an affiliate of theirs as well. The primary benefit I see of an e-REIT like Fundrise over a traditional REIT, real estate investment trust, uh, mutual fund or ETF like Vanguard, like VNQ, which I also own, is the yield. So for example, Fundrise is paying 8 to 11% dividends and VNQ is paying something like 4.4%. The downside, and Adam kind of mentioned this, is it's far less liquid and it's far less diversified, right? You know, they have just a handful of properties that they're holding and cash flowing. So I haven't tried to cash out any of my holdings yet, but it's definitely designed as a long-term cash flow play. I don't know if I could sell my shares in it if I, if I wanted to. And so it's definitely like, okay, I'm going to hold this and it's going to pay me dividends every quarter. And at least so far, so far that's held true. Who knows? I could be making a, a big mistake over there. So I've kind of started small and ramped that up as, uh, as they prove themselves. Question 12 comes from Marius. He says, what are your top three books that you really enjoyed reading and feel that are must-reads for others in the business marketing, leadership, startup, personal improvement space? Marius, I really like this question because I'm always a sucker for book lists. So my top three are, and I'd love to hear yours at sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A four. Uh, number one, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. This was like the first nonfiction businessy book that I read. My roommate recommended it to me in college. I think it's a solid foundational classic. You know, whether or not Rich Dad ever really existed or whatever you think of Mr. Kiyosaki's dealings um, outside of this book, this one kind of solidified a couple important things for me. Number one was to invest for cash flow. And the second one was to buy or build assets instead of spending money on stuff that doesn't pay you back. So buy or build assets and then focus on that cash flow. And the the big takeaway there is like once your cash flow from assets or investments or your business exceeds your monthly expenses, you're free. You're free of the rat race. So that was a really powerful message to read as a as an impressionable 19-year-old youth. The second book I have on this list is The Go-Giver by Bob Berg which the big takeaway there is be helpful first and be open to receiving the good things that flow back to you. Every business that I've had that's been successful has been helpful first and then good things have came versus coming at it from the other angle of like, I think I can make money with this. And then, you know, you kind of, it kind of fizzles out. The third book that I have is The Slight Edge. And I love this book because it's about making consistent progress even when that progress might seem meaningless in the near term or ineffective in the near term, but you'll start to see this exponential effect, this compound effect, uh, if you can do that over time. And so I've, I've definitely seen that in practice in my own life, in my own work, and um, and so have many others. So I'd encourage you to check out The Slight Edge if you haven't. I actually did an episode on The Slight Edge as well. I'll link that up for you in the show notes. But what would you add? You know, what would make your list? If you could only pick three, you know, uh, as as foundational must-read books, let me know in the comments at sidehustlenation.com slash Q and A4. In question 13, Alex asks, uh, how can somebody teach or provide courses about mindfulness and stress and anxiety if they are not a neuroscience researcher or a psychologist or they don't have a background in those fields? Anxiety and depression is a serious thing. It should be treated by a professional. So this is in reference to 
the episode I did with Ben Foley, who talked about overcoming anxiety and specifically blogging on medium.com. Ben, you can find Ben at fullyrichlife.com. And so Alex goes on and says, hey, I'm not asking this because I want to show disrespect to Ben or insult him. He says, I have admiration for Ben and what he's doing this. I'm asking this because myself, I have a moral struggle with this, with providing or teaching or giving advice in something that is not really my professional background. Like, do I have the right to do that? Is that something I can do just based on my experience and passion and love with no detailed professional background knowledge? Is that going to harm someone? So Alex, this is, I think, a really important question. This is the imposter syndrome question. It's the, you know, who am I to talk about such and such a topic? It's probably the reason I didn't start Side Hustle Nation earlier. Like, what are people going to think? Hey, I know that guy. He's not that smart. He's not that successful. So this is a serious question for a lot of people. And I actually posed this question in the Side Hustle Nation Facebook group to hear what the community had to say. You can join that group if you're not already in there, sidehustlenation.com slash FB. It's going to redirect you over there. So I'm going to read a couple of the responses from group members uh, on this. I think they probably will do it a better uh, justice than me. So first up, Mindy says, look, you don't have to have expert credentials to be able to help people. If you've lived life, then you have an opinion and you can offer your insight. Lisa says, hey, look, as long as you make it clear you're not an expert, you're, you're just a person providing your opinion, why not share that insight? It might be just what somebody needs to hear. Be responsible and be clear of what you are and what you're not. I think you're gonna be fine. So the consensus in that thread, which actually was pretty in-depth, came down to the trust that you build with your audience and being upfront about your formal training and your certifications or the lack thereof. In Ben's case, he's not claiming to be anything he's not. So Alex, if you're on the fence about jumping uh, into whatever niche you have in mind, I think you can establish authority today in other ways, just beyond formal training and certification. You just have to be mindful of the laws and regulations surrounding that industry. Like, I'm not going to go sign off as an architect on a high rise because I helped my buddy put up a shed in his backyard, but I can share my experience to the extent that it's relevant and then gently direct people to someone potentially more qualified when, when the need comes. So that's kind of how I deal with the imposter syndrome stuff. It starts with putting yourself out there in a way that you're comfortable with and then kind of expanding that expertise and seeing what resonates with people and, and then being, of course, you know, full disclosure, being upfront with, you know, your professional standing in that field. Question 14 comes from Guy. He says, I've got several different websites in the works. Can slash should I do all these different affiliate links through one Amazon Associates account? Do I use my personal Amazon account or should I create a separate business account uh, to do this? And lastly, if Hypothetically, I've got a business registered with Amazon to do the affiliate links. Does that mean I could technically click on those links and purchase items from my personal Amazon account and get whatever small commission is from the business account? So guy, first, um, I would probably say focus on one of those sites at a time, you know, high level stuff, and then get it to the point where it's earning consistent traffic, consistent income. But let's let's fast forward to the scenario that you're proposing where you do have several sites rocking and rolling. You can absolutely run all of those links through one Amazon Associates account. And the cool thing you can do is set up different tracking IDs. It's like a sub ID underneath your Amazon account to see which sites the sales are coming from. I think each account can have up to 100 of these tracking IDs. So really cool uh, tracking system that Amazon has built in for you. Um, as far as uh, business account, personal account, I just have my Associates account under the same email I use for Amazon Shopping. It'll ask you for your payout info, your tax info. So you can enter a different tax ID in there if needed. You can enter your, you know, employer identification number, the tax ID of your business, or you can just join as an individual sole proprietor too. If you do end up creating a separate business account on the 
can I then buy through my own links? They do have a rule against self-referrals. Um, and it was years ago, I think the language said something like, look, we run an affiliate program, not a discount program. But I'm not sure exactly how strictly that's policed, if you have a different entity name, different tax ID, different address. But because Amazon is such an important part of my business, it's not something I'm going to go out of my way to test for a few bucks. I want to stay in their good graces. All right, question 15 is from Patrick. He says, my current business model that I'm testing out is a flat rate web design and maintenance service with design, security, and hosting included. My thought process is, look, I'll handle your WordPress website while you do what you do best. You go make money. I'll handle the technical stuff. I recently did a small AdWords test, and while I did get one customer from $10 in advertising, I didn't get nearly the bites I was hoping for. Do you think this is a stupid idea? Patrick, a $10 cost of acquisition is crazy cheap for this kind of business. Um, I don't know what kind of results you were hoping for for $10 in advertising, but I would definitely consider that a win. That's, you know, 10 bucks, probably not going to be a valid sample size, but you proved there was a demand for it, which I think is awesome. Now, this business model it might sound familiar. It sounds a lot like Dan Norris's WP Curve, uh, which offered unlimited WordPress support for $79 a month. And last year was acquired by GoDaddy for an undisclosed sum. Dan was a guest on the show in episode 132 of the Side Hustle Show. But Patrick, where, where WP Curve succeeded was with their scale. And if I was looking for inf inspiration from them, I might follow John Rauda's example instead. John was a guest on episode 139. Instead, where he targeted fewer customers, but at a higher price point. I think he was charging $200 or, or $500 a month to be the on-call IT guy for these local companies. And he did it by striking up conversations with companies he was already doing business with or ones that he wanted to do business with and kind of could work out a barter agreement. Like, hey, I noticed your website sucks. Would you, you know, can I help you out with that in exchange for you doing my landscaping or something like that? And, you know, so he would do the, you know, modernize their sites first and then get them on an ongoing maintenance and security and, and hosting contract. And the reason I say that is, you know, 10 customers at $500 sounds like a lot easier way to get that than 60 customers at $79. So Patrick, what do you think? Keep me posted on this one. Love to hear how it goes. One of the toughest parts about starting and growing your business is figuring out how to build relationships. As you know, people are more likely to buy from and do business with people they know, like, and trust. But when it comes to networking, where do you start? And what if you're more introverted like me? What if you're more wallflower than social butterfly? Well, there's a recent episode of a great podcast called This is Small Business that walks you through how to figure this stuff out. The episode is called How Networking Can Help You Build and Grow Your Business. And inside, you'll learn practical tips on how to build business relationships that don't feel so transactional. A couple parts I liked in particular were how to break into those uh, tight little circles at networking events where you're kind of standing around awkwardly on the outside, and then what you should say in a follow-up email to somebody that you meet there. This is Small Business answers a ton of these questions that all entrepreneurs have, like how to use social media to grow your business, how to find your ideal price point, how to know when you're ready to launch your product, and tons more. So give it a follow. This is Small Business, an original podcast from Amazon, wherever you listen to podcasts. This edition of the Side Hustle Show is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. That means whether you're just starting out or your side hustle is already growing like crazy, Squarespace takes all things website-related and makes them easy. 
I want to highlight a few Squarespace features for you. One I knew about and a couple I didn't. First off, where Squarespace really shines is this huge library of professional website templates. That means you're not starting from scratch because they've got designs for every category and use case that you can customize to fit your unique needs so your business stands out online. That was the thing I knew about. Second one was new to me, and that's their online store functionality. Whether you're selling physical or digital products or a service, Squarespace has got the tools you need to start selling online. And third is their email campaigns. They make it easy to collect email subscribers from your site and drive engagement and sales through Squarespace email campaigns, and you can track the results of every send with built-in analytics. So head on over to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash side hustle to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash side hustle. All right, let's bring this thing home. Question 16 comes from John. He says, I was on your recent webinar with Chandler Bolt and I've got a few questions. Did you get paid to do the webinar? How many people were left at the end of the webinar? And how many people actually bought Chandler's program during the webinar? So John, this is a great question. Did I get paid to do the webinar? Yes and no. Like almost everything I do, it's on a performance basis, on a commission basis. I invite my audience to the webinar and earn a commission on any sales that come from those referrals. So historically, I've done two or three of these types of joint venture workshops each year, and they're designed to be win-win-win. The attendees get some helpful content, hopefully, even if they don't buy. I look good for introducing the attendees to that content and have the chance to earn some commissions as well. And the webinar host gets in front of a fresh new audience. So how many people were left at the end of the webinar? Um, In terms of the number of attendees, we had around 2,500 people register. Of those, around 500 people showed up alive. And then by the end of the hour, hour and a half, uh, around 200 were still there, maybe a little more. That's the biggest crowd I've ever had on a live webinar, which was pretty cool to see, pretty exciting to see. And I was just disappointed. I couldn't get the tech to work right the whole night. So there was this weird audio lag, this auto, like electrical interference thing. So I kept having to refresh the window and I couldn't participate as much as, uh, as I normally like to. So how many people bought as uh, as the co-host on these things? I usually don't get uh, really good real-time reporting. So I don't know how many people uh, bought Chandler's self-publishing school program live on the webinar. But over the course of the launch in my affiliate account, I did see eight or 10 signups, which for the sake of transparency was worth around $4,000 in commissions. Now, as, uh, as an author, I love getting my Amazon author royalty direct deposits every month. And I think it's a great side hustle. So I'm excited to see what books come out of this new cohort of authors. And that's a little bit of, uh, of an insight into how these types of joint venture webinar promotions work. In question 17, Karen asks, I have a side hustle idea I've been thinking about for a few years, and I would love your objective viewpoint. She says, if there existed a print or online directory of freelancers where individuals listed their services, would you use it uh, when trying to find help for your own projects? For the freelancers in your audience who have a service-based business, do you think they would list themselves as part of an overall marketing strategy? So my gut reaction and what I told Karen is this sounds really hard to build. Um, Reason for that is there's no reason for freelancers to pony up the cash to uh, join this network until there's a ton of clients, a ton of uh, prospective employers on there. And there's no reason for clients to come and use the site until there's a ton of freelancers. There are, on top of that, there are dozens of competing services that are trying to tackle that problem. 
um, like Upwork and Freelancer.com and Guru.com. But the the ones I see doing really well today are are those that come at it from a unique angle. Like they're not trying to be everything to everyone. They're uh, the services like uh, Copywriter Today from uh, Gabe Arnold, um, who was a guest on the show, or services like Design Pickle, who you'll hear from uh, Russ Perry next month on the show, where it's like, hey, look, we do one thing and we sell it on a monthly subscription model. Question 18 is from Charon. I don't know if I'm saying that name correctly. Uh, He or she says, I want to uh, start a blog uh, and I'm looking for a good WordPress theme. What's the name of the WordPress theme you're using on SideHustleNation.com? Well, Charon, if you have stopped by SideHustleNation.com lately, you might have noticed the site got a recent facelift, a long overdue refresh, if you will, been running over three years on the old theme, three and a half years on the old theme. But the new theme is called Generate Press. And I think the pro version of that was only $40. Um, I've got a full write-up on the blog about my redesign process, what's new, uh, the tools and services that I used, how much it cost, and uh, what the goals were for uh, the changes that I made. So I'll link that up for you in uh, the show notes for this episode, sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A4. And if you're thinking of starting a blog of your own, you can check out my free video course at blogstartercourse.com. Question 19 comes from Jesse. He says, all your podcasts are about (laughs) these side hustles, but which ones do you do? So uh, Jesse, this email made me realize it's been a while since episode 63 of uh, the podcast where I outlined the eight income streams I was working on at that time. That was summer of 2014 when that show went live. At that time, they were affiliate marketing, Kindle publishing, peer-to-peer lending, Fiverr, blogging and podcasting, coaching and mastermind hosting, clarity.fm consulting, and online courses on Udemy. So I still have all of those, so those eight, although actually I paused the coaching and the mastermind stuff for the time being, just kind of took a little bit of a hiatus there. Uh, number one, I found the the coaching, the one-on-one consulting, like kind of stressed me out a little bit. And then the mastermind stuff, it just, after our son was born, it just became a lot more difficult to part with that hour in the evening and had built up some other income streams. It became less uh, of a pressing issue. So I'm thinking of retooling that or re- restructuring that in a way that would make it more impactful for participants and uh, I don't know just trying to make that a little bit of a better experience all around but um, so I've replaced those income streams with podcast sponsorships with some cash flow investing experiments a little bit of freelancing over the last couple years and a little bit of e-commerce over the last couple years including my experiments with eBay inspired by Scott Volker some Amazon FBA stuff um, although not a ton of that this year and of course the uh, merch by Amazon stuff we talked about last week on the show. But as you might have gathered, the Side Hustle Nation site and podcast have really become uh, the main focus over the last year, even two years. And part of me feels like I'm slacking on the experimentation side. So I'm open to suggestions. I've got a few ideas of what the next big project might be. But if you've got something you're dying to see me attempt, I'm all ears for it. SideHustleNation.com slash Q&A4. Leave me a comment there if there's a particular side hustle uh, you'd love to see me try and tackle. And question 20, bringing it home, is from Austin. He asks, what is the biggest mistake you made during your side hustle journey? So Austin, when I was working full time and I was working on my business on the side, which at the time was a comparison shopping site for footwear, I think the biggest mistake I made was isolating myself from other entrepreneurs. And that continued even to into the first few years as uh, as a full-time hustler. It wasn't intentional. It wasn't on purpose or anything. It was just, I was really heads down on my work, which can be good in a way, but it can also make you miss stuff. An outside 
perspective every now and again can be really helpful, whether it's just for accountability or if it's just you know for genuine insight into new revenue streams or the casual, hey, have you thought about doing it this way or have you considered this? Like that kind of stuff can be really important. And I mean, there's a lot of things I probably would have done differently uh, given the chance to go back, but forming or joining some sort of mastermind community or peer group earlier, I think that would have been really helpful. And I actually wish... Uh, on a different topic, I actually wish I'd hired my first virtual assistant earlier. That ended up opening up a, a lot of doors. And with the hindsight that the business didn't end up having an infinite lifespan, that could have helped scale things up faster uh, to get while well, the getting was good. But that's it for me. Notes and links from this episode again at sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A4. As always, if you have questions for me, feel free to ask away. Twitter, email, Facebook, I am around. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of the Side Hustle Show, where we're actually diving into the theme of recurring revenue for the next few weeks on the show and exploring different ways to get that done. So next week, you're going to hear from a full-time police officer who built a pretty awesome subscription box service in his spare time. Pretty cool story. I'll see you then. Hustle on. Thanks for listening to the Side Hustle Show at www.sidehustlenation.com. Is there a more dreaded question than what's for dinner? Meal planning and eating well to hit your nutrition goals doesn't have to be complicated. Our sponsor, Factor, makes it easy by sending delicious, ready-to-eat, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door. Every week, you've got over 35 different menu options to choose from, including keto, calorie-smart, vegan and veggie options, and more. Some personal favorites of ours so far have been the garlic mushroom chicken thighs and the Indian butter tofu. These are restaurant-quality meals ready in just two minutes. No prep, no mess. It's the perfect easy button solution for busy side hustlers and couples. And it's not just dinner either. Factor has nutrient-packed snacks, smoothies, breakfasts, and more. And hey, plans change, which is why you can scale up or down your meals or pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Head to factormeals.com slash sidehustle50 and use code sidehustle50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while your subscription is active. That's code sidehustle50 at factormeals.com slash sidehustle50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while subscription is active. Big thanks to Factor for sponsoring the show.